Following along in your bulletin, you'll notice the first thing we're going to talk about for a hot minute is uh, the communion of the saints, and I think the <coughs> state of state of the union, uh, the state of the union address was just this past week, and so we're kind of doing like a state of the communion of saints here at the church, if you will. Um, I think it hopefully will be happier than that one was earlier this week, um, and and part of part of this is. Uh, I just wanted to be honest as a pastor, kind of some of the things that God is teaching me and growing me. By no means am I a pastor because I figured it out. Uh, we, uh, I, you know, view myself as kind of like a lead follower of Jesus, and I feel like God uh, has just really been done, doing a lot of stuff in my heart the last few months, um, last year really, but especially the last, uh, last few months. And I think it, it, I think it pertains to kind of like what, what our church family looks like and some of the dynamics going on in our church family. So if you're visiting with us, Cheers. This is kind of like a family discussion. You're more than welcome to, to, to listen. It's all about the gospel, so hopefully it's edifying either way. Uh, but this is just something I want us to kind of consider as a church family. So the thing about the gospel is that it's big enough and profound enough for you know men to spend their men and women to spend their entire lives getting PhDs and studying the plunging the depths of it. But it's also simple enough for a child to grasp. Uh, it's, it's big enough to write countless books and books and books about, and it's simple enough to, you know, fit on a coffee mug or, or uh, a bumper sticker, God, God help us. And I, honestly, it's big enough for us to literally spend eternity exploring and plunging the depths of. So it's, you know, and, and Scripture gives us all kinds of images and pictures and analogies and all, all kinds of things uh, for, for how to understand the gospel, that, which is why we have stuff to preach on for the rest of our lives. Uh, and, w- and within that, that entire scope of the gospel, there are kind of certain parts or elements or ways to think about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that I think resonate more clearly with, with certain types of people or certain, certain cultures. Like all, all the parts and elements based in scripture are, are true of the gospel. All of them involve Jesus living a perfect life, dying the death that we deserved and being raised to new life. But I think and this is how it pertains to the state of the communion of saints, I think the, the elements of the gospel that are the most compelling and exciting to me uh, might not necessarily be for, like, our, our broader church culture. And I, I'm seeing some of the ways that I've kind of, like, leaned towards the, the elements of the gospel that are, that are just kind of jammed with, with what's going on in my heart. And, and I think to some degree we, I've missed opportunities to, to call us to, to other aspects of it. Because, see, my, my biggest fear in life is being stuck. I, that, that's my biggest fear in life, being controlled or stuck in my problems, uh, stuck in painful or frustrating situations that I can't do anything about. Like, and it just nothing triggers you know, a- my anger or my withdrawal or uh, my lust, like feeling like I'm, like I'm stuck. And you know, like little things like having to sit in a super long meeting that I'm not leading that just keeps going and going, and I just have to sit there. Like, I feel, like it starts to make like, you know, like my, my, ch- my chest constrict. Uh, and, and, and I'm learning just some of my weaknesses as a pastor. Nothing, nothing causes me to hurt people more than, than and, or to be unloving than to feel like uh, people are, are holding me back or keeping me stuck in things that they're struggling with. And the good news of Jesus Christ to people like me who are afraid of being stuck is that he came to people who are stuck in their sin to set us free. And scripture is full of these beautiful things. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We're, we're not stuck in darkness. We're not stuck in our problems. Why? Because Jesus came to us. 
And now we can experience life to the full. He said he came not only just to save us, but so that we might have life to the full. We might have abundant life. Like I, I can just jam on that verse all the time. And then he begins to describe all these parables that just like really resonate with me. Jesus does. Like he talks about the kingdom of heaven, life with God, this full life with God is like a pearl that's so valuable and so precious to you that like for joy you go and sell everything. You, you structure your whole life to go and buy the pearl of great, great price. Like I love that kind of thing. And Paul says all kinds of stuff that really jam with, with how I'm wired. Like this good news of the gospel is, is so precious that we count everything as rubbish compared to in order that we might gain Christ. Right? Press on toward the goal of the upward call of God and Jesus Christ. Like I love this kind of thing. We're, we're not stuck in our sin and our darkness. We can press on to the good life with God, which is why you hear me say the good life with God so, so many times. And you know, Paul, Paul is kind of intense. Uh, you know, he says, don't you know that all runners run the race to win, but only one wins it. So run so that you'll win the prize. And I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Like in the, in the stuckness of my sin in Christ, the broken ways of living, the pain or futility are gone. And you just think of like the actual like mechanics of the gospel. Jesus was literally stuck for my sake. He was literally nailed to the cross. He was stuck to the cross that I should have been stuck to and rose to new life. So we never have to be stuck again. We never have to be hopeless again because we have this new life in Christ. Praise the Lord. That's true. That's the gospel. To people like me who are afraid of being stuck, that is the good news. But it's just not, it's not the only way to, to see the gospel. I was talking to another pastor about uh, some, some struggles that Camille and I were wrestling through, and he was saying, like, so what do you say to her in that place? And I kind of pastored out on him, you know, like, well, I say this, this, and this, and I quote this verse and all this stuff. Yeah, it's, it's exhausting to be married to me. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff, like, press on, leave it all behind, engage. And he said, that sounds like the gospel that you need to hear. What do you think the good news is to Camille in that place? And it was just like a smack in the face, because, praise God, Camille is wired differently than me. It was just a sweet experience to then consider what, like, the things that she was sharing with me and consider what Scripture says and what, what might be the good news to her. And, and then that got me thinking about the church because, uh, again, this kind of state of the communion. I, I, last fall uh, in particular, I felt like I was like, getting worse at, at pastoring the church. I felt like the more I, I thought I was trying to call us to the good news, to the gospel, and particularly the good news of, of biblical community, it, it seemed like the more stressed out we were getting. And uh, it just you know it didn't seem it seemed like there was some kind of there's some kind of miss and there's something missing and and so again that kind of like a smack to the face I feel like God showed me some stuff as I just consider like where we are as a church things that I've heard or just kind of impressions that I've picked up like many of us just feel so busy we don't know what we're gonna do and we're just kind of starting out our lives adulting we feel like there's no margin no safe place many of us feel this incredible weight maybe from our church baggage, maybe from all the social media by which we can compare ourselves to all these incredible people that are doing and being everything that we think we should do. And so we just feel guilty and helpless and stuck in our, in our little lives. Or we just feel terrible that like, we're, we're not enough and we don't have enough to like, navigate, navigate life. I don't know if these resonate with you, but I feel like I, th- these are things I've picked up. We feel like we're, we're on our own without security and support trying to 
trying to do life and be, be what we're supposed to be. Like we're not okay with how our lives are. Like we, we want to see change. We want to see growth in our lives. But the thought of change just feels like terrifying. It feels scary or, or, or confusing. And so like, what's, the, what's the gospel to that? What's the gospel that, uh, that we need to hear? Is it press on toward the upper call of Christ and God and by the field when we're feeling like so, so empty and spent and unsafe? What are the words of our Savior? Well, I started praying about this, and it was just like a tidal wave of Scripture just like washed over me. And I, I feel like, uh, I just feel like the, the word of God to us in this place is, is really sweet and tender. And, I, and, I, and this is kind of my confession. I feel like I might not have uh, called us to this. And, and they're, they're verses that I know and like, but don't necessarily think a lot, right? Because I'm always, like, pressing on and buying the pearl and, you know, trying to do all this stuff all the time. Because there's, there's, all the Psalms are just full of, of what? God is our refuge. He is our strength. He's very present in times of trouble. We won't fear, though the earth gives way. Or another Psalm says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Isaiah says, fear not, for I am with you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Jesus is always telling his disciples, like, don't be afraid. When he was walking on the water, they were terrified, and they said, it's a ghost. And he says, Take heart, it's, it is I. Take heart, it's me. It's Jesus, it's your king, it's your savior. Don't be afraid. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Come to me and I'll give you rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. First Peter says, cast your cares, cast your anxieties on me. This is what the God of the universe says to us in our anxiety. Like, Give them to me, I'm here. I want them because I love you, because I care for you. And we could go on and on all day, literally, because this, the, this good news of God in Christ being our fortress, our safe place, our strength, upholding us by his victorious right hand is just all over. The feeling of being exposed or vulnerable or not safe. Jesus felt that to the, to the fullness of that when he was naked, nailed to a cross, all alone, whipped and beaten. And ultimately separated from his father. He bore the sin, he bore our sin that keeps us isolated from God, keeps us separate from God. So we truly are without a safe place, without resources. But then he rose to new life so that we can live this new life with God, the God who's with us, the God who upholds us, the God who is our safe place. We don't live like orphans without, without a home, without loving authority, without tender guidance. But we live as beloved children and the Father's family. So praise the Lord. That's the gospel as well. Do you see the difference, though? Do you see how like, both those things are true and incredibly biblical? And praise God that we have all these different ways to embrace the gospel for uh, all of eternity. And, and I just think the, 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 the sobering thing for me, uh, praise God, that he's in control, is that 
the, the good news of the gospel, that we can press on and have the good life and buy the pearl in the field and run the race, I think on the front end, that's not really good news to a lot of us when we're feeling super tapped and burnt out. And to hear that we can engage and act and change and do all this stuff when we just feel like empty and tapped and scared, like we just want to watch a show and take a nap. Because the, the, the idea is that it's not actually good news. It is good news, objectively, if we're not living in the truth that God is our rock and refuge. I just feel like, as a pastor, I want, I want 2019 to kind of be a year where we, uh, wh- whatever it looks like for us as we follow Jesus together, to like really press into living in the reality that God is our rock and refuge, who provides everything we need as our Father before we even ask. And so we can wait on him to act. We can be still and know that he is God. And listen, y'all, like, the thought of being still and just waiting is, like, my worst nightmare. Like, that's, that's, not, that's not necessarily good news to me on the front end. And so, you know, when people share hard stuff with me, I'm like, good news, guys. There's, like, 15 things we can do right now to see God help this get better. And that's just not necessarily, like, a loving thing that, that a lot of people need from a pastor. And, and so my point is this, that I think God has brought us together for our good. I think God brought me here to Big Rapids on purpose so that I can learn the truth that he's my refuge. Be still and wait on him. Most of the spiritual disciplines that are like the most difficult but the most fruitful for me are these things like silence and solitude and contemplative prayer and slowly reading scripture and slow walks. These things like that slow me down, draw my attention to who God is, grow my patience and gentleness to, to, Lord willing, have the heart of Christ and be with people in pain and suffering and helplessness. This has been destroying me the last few weeks. God doesn't say, fix one another's burdens. What does he say? Bear one another's burdens. You know, like... I think he sent me here to call me out of the, the unbelief of action. There's a type of action that stems from unbelief that I don't truly believe that God is God and he will do it, and so I need to do everything all the time. But I also think he sent me here so that we as a church family can, can explore what it looks like to embrace the impo- incredible power that we have from the Holy Spirit inside of all of us to grow and to serve and to change, to become like Jesus, to show the goodness of God to the world. I think one of the ways, one of the reasons he might have sent me here was to call us as a church family out of the unbelief of inaction. There's a type of stillness or inaction that comes from doubting that God is good and that he'll be there with us if we step out of the boat when we engage. And this is why being a church family is just so crucial and beautiful because it, it, it fills out our gospel understanding as we all seek to understand it in ways that resonate the most with us and we, we chip away at kind of like our, our crustiness where we get kind of stuck and just one way of, of viewing it. So I just wanted to confess to you guys, uh, it's been three years, three and a half years or so that I've been here. If you felt stressed out and overwhelmed by me, I'm, I'm sorry. And uh, I'm in counseling, working on it. And I think that uh, as we continue to press in uh, and follow Jesus together, we'll, we'll just continue to savor the, more the fullness of, of the gospel. Jesus' way of life, his yoke is uh, light and his burden is easy. Okay.
So that's the state of the communion. Thanks for, thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, uh, grab them. Uh, we'll be in uh, Matthew 8. We're just looking at four verses today to kind of uh, continue our series, set up the, the framework for Jesus uh, doing things out in the world after he just finished a bunch of teaching that we looked at last summer. Page 1507. So Jeff and Quinn kind of kicked off our new sermon series called Follow King Jesus Together. We've been talking about following Jesus together being the idea that we're gathering around as a church, as we're a small church, as we're an old church looking uh, for revitalization. And we threw in the word king there because the next few chapters in Matthew are all about Jesus's authority. Matthew's all about the kingdom. He's all about talking about Jesus being king of his kingdom, bringing the kingdom. The kingdom is now available to us. The kingdom is near. Authority is kind of the main thing that he's showing us in the next few chapters. And so as we, as we look at this little story of him healing this person, I just want us to sit with the question, who is Jesus to you? Sometimes in our culture, it's easy to see Jesus just as a savior, as a guy who took a beating so we didn't have to, as a, 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 a lovable guy who's kind of aloof and disconnected from reality, but will give us kind of a hug if we need to or whatever. When you're baptized, at least here, there's a sacred confession of faith. Jesus is Lord. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. And I think what that's getting at is that we see him as our master, as our king, as the one who has the authority. And so consider which, which kind of way of relating to Jesus is, is best for you. Is he kind of like you know, a TED Talk guru that you, you tune into a little bit when you need a, a little insight or... Is he uh, kind of like your fire insurance, this great guy that made sure you didn't have to go to hell? And let's consider him as our king. And within that, consider how we respond to authority. I think Quinn used this example yesterday, because I think a lot of us, we live like, like a teenager, where you, know, you have no money, you have no assets, you have no ability to survive in the world, your parents are sustaining your life, but you are mad at them and rebel against them. And, and then our culture, like deep in the roots of our, our country and our culture is this sense of, you know, don't tread on me. You know, like, if you tax me without representation, I'll kill you. Like, there's, you know, there's this, like, intense, like, sense of, like, individuality and don't, don't get me. And then we, but we also, as we have shuck off a lot of authority, we, we really want it, too, because, you know, we're, we're, that's why we love TED Talks. You ever met someone who's, like, studies the Bible of TED Talks on, on YouTube. I love TED Talks. But the thing about TED Talks or just checking with authorities or Googling something is that ultimately we're still the authority. We're just kind of researching stuff to see what seems right, look for tools to make sense. So to start, I just want to do a, a very short kind of biblical understanding of authority. Keep your finger in, uh, in Matthew 8 here and flip over to uh, Romans uh, 13. Scripture shows us that authority is super important. And it's not just important uh, 
for the future and heaven, it's important for right now. It's a matter of like where, how our houses or how our lives stand. Look at verse 13. This is on page 1764 if you're following along in the Bibles. Just verses 1 and 2. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority <clears throat> except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Let's stop there. This passage shows us pretty bluntly the source of all authority, which is what? It's God. There's no authority except that which God has established. It's pretty black and white, but it's also kind of a big pill to swallow. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Verse 2, consequently, he who rebels against authority is rebelling against that what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So the context of this, Paul is talking about how do we relate to governments? How do we relate to those authorities? And in doing that, he shows us just kind of this essential truth of how the Bible understands authority, which is that it all comes from God. When there's an authority over you, good, bad, and ugly, it shows that it comes from God. And rebelling against that is rebelling against that which God has instituted. Now, are there ways, you know, civil disobedience or things to, you know, to, to reform or whatnot? Yes, this is not really what we're talking about here. That's always where we go as Americans, right? We all, we're revolutionaries at heart. Uh, yes, there's space for that, but that's not what we're talking about here. Let's, we want to dial in to the essential truth that all authority comes from God, even evil ones, even bad ones. Now, you don't have to turn here, but I just want to show you, like, how incredible this is, how piercing this is in Scripture. I'm going to read you just six verses, seven verses from 1 Samuel uh, 24. David is God's main man, man after God's own heart. And look at how David, the man after God's own heart, responds to authority. Saul is the king at the time, and he wants to kill David uh, with everything in him. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep's pen along the way, a cave that was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. After David was con afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, and lift <clears throat> my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. This is a staggering story because we have this, like, kind of psychotic ruler who just took 3,000 people to come find David and kill him. And David has a chance to kill this guy, this unjust ruler, this evil man who's actively trying to destroy him. And he calls him his master, the Lord's anointed. David knows that he's been anointed to be king eventually. And so it's like the kingship's like right there, like in his grasp. But because he's so joyfully submitted, even as he's hiding for his life in, in a cave, that, that he doesn't kill Saul. He doesn't transgress God's law and kill. Until we see that all authority is God's, we pick and choose 
based on what seems right to us. Even if we like hear something and submit to it, like a diet or a political theory or whatever, we're still ultimately in the deciding, deciding bit. And a, a really piercing story from my experience, even in this church, is one of the, the passages on Scripture that we've just tried to like cling to with all our life is Matthew 18, which says, if you have something against your brother, go to him. Because like gossip and slander is this, this terrible thing in the history of this church. And there was, there was a, a, a member of the church who was fielding all these complaints from all these different people. They'd call him or visit him and complain, mostly about me. Uh, and, and this guy felt like it was his job to kind of be the mediator and, and, and make peace. But what does Jesus say? If you have a problem, go to your brother. Go to that person. And so this like huge situation blew up because he was kind of enabling these people to not go to the person, to not obey Jesus. And when we talked about it, I said, what does Jesus say about this situation? Well, yeah, I know he says that, but they didn't feel like they could, or they, they were scared, or they didn't want to. And so I wanted to step in. So the question is, who are they rejecting if they don't go to the person that they have a problem with? Oh, well, you. Like, no, there, like there's, there's no caveat in Jesus' instruction to go to the person you have a problem with. And so you see that even in someone who has deep roots in the church and is a good Christian person, just like when it gets like really prickly and hard and Jesus says something really clearly, it's like, well, yeah, he says that, but. Where we submit to Jesus when it works or it feels right or it's not too difficult. And the piercing conviction from David's story is that even when it's objectively wrong, not even Jesus' authority, but wrong authority, this is the posture that we start with. Again, revolution is an option somewhere. We'll talk about that another time. But this is where we start with. Turning to our sermon text then, back in uh, Matthew 8. Just going to walk through this here. Super excited to do this because the Sermon on the Mount messed me up. We did, we did like, I don't know, almost a year going through the Sermon on the Mount and we see Jesus at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It says, when he saw the crowds, he left. He went up on the mountain and sat down, and his disciples came to him. So the crowds and the disciples are two different groups. The disciples are people who are like, I'm in. I want to follow you. And he sits down on the Sermon on the Mount, and he teaches them. And then look at how Matthew, he kind of bookends the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse 1. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So we see that he started teaching his disciples. It seems to imply that maybe like a crowd of people, not people who were like bought in, but people who were curious about Jesus, kind of started hanging out with him. And instead of teaching, now he starts doing. Now he starts acting in the world. And I just want to spend a a hot second talking about this difference between crowds and disciples, because I think for us in the United States, this is like a blistering reality, is that Scripture has only three categories for people in their interaction with Jesus. There's his followers, people who left everything to follow him. There are his enemies, people who eventually kill him. And then there's the crowds, people who are just like intrigued, but still a little standoffish, people who are like open to getting some free food or seeing something exciting. You know, it's before like TV and Internet and Instagram, so like someone doing miracles would have been really, really exciting. So the crowds are people who are intrigued by Jesus, but never actually buy in, like never actually follow him, never actually call him king. 
never actually let him be Lord of their lives. He still talks to them and interacts with them or whatever, but ultimately they're not the people who enter the kingdom. Look at verse 2. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So some leper stuff. Lepers come up uh, several times in the gospel, and at this time period, it was some kind of skin disease. It could have been several different ones, uh, but it was very visible. It was disfiguring. A lot of times you lose, like, nose and ears and fingers. Uh, and in this religious system that Jesus is working in, <clears throat> lepers would have been outcasts. They would have been viewed as not just sick, but, like, religiously unclean, like, morally unclean. would have been incredible shame. Typically, they lived in, like, leper colonies outside the city together. And if they ever, like, went into town for food or whatnot, uh, they would have to, like, wear a bell around their neck and shout, unclean. Uh, so it was, uh, just any time in public, they had to, like, draw attention to the, the most, like, painful, devastating part of their lives. What's crazy is how this leper responds to Jesus. We know that he's surrounded by a crowd, right? Like, it's not like he waited till Jesus was alone so he could kind of sneak up, hold his bell still so he didn't draw too much attention. <clears throat> he goes right to him in the middle of this crowd. And he responds by kneeling, calling him Lord, and just stating a fact. You notice he doesn't like ask a question. He st like states his belief. He states what he knows to be true. If you are willing, you can make me clean. So the outsider, this unclean person, the person who's probably not seen his family for a long time, not been hugged or touched by anyone he loves other than maybe some of the other lepers, was willing to draw, was drawn to Jesus and knelt before him and simply stated his belief. Now this part is so cool. Look at verse 3. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man, said, I am willing, be clean. I think what Matthew's doing here is this really beautiful literary thing, because when he kicks off the Sermon on the Mount, it said, when Jesus sat down, he opened his mouth and taught them. And now we have Jesus here standing and reaching out his hand and touching the man. He says, I will be clean. And immediately he was cured. The significance of touch is huge here. It's been so fascinating to me the last few months to study how Jesus heals different people because sometimes it's just like, go, your son will live, like totally long-distance healing, and sometimes he's like spitting on making mud and touching people's eyes and stuff, and it's very fascinating. We could talk about that for a long time. But here's a man who hasn't been touched by anyone for a very, very long time, a total outsider, someone who society believes that if he was touched, they would then become unclean. That anyone who touched this man, would, his uncleanness would travel to them. And this is a beautiful, powerful picture of Jesus reaching out, touching the outsider, touching the outcast. Instead of Jesus becoming unclean, this man now becomes clean. This is what Jesus does with his authority. We talk about submitting to his authority, and it's really scary. To have someone have control over our life, someone that we say yes to, whether we feel like it or not. But I hope that we see today that Jesus' authority involves a healing touch. It's not just teaching and commands. It's also a presence that touches us and heals us. 
Now look at Jesus' instructions in verse 4. Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Another thing that this shows us about Jesus' authority, don't tell anyone. Does it seem strange to anyone else? Is Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, is like never looking for fame. He's like the opposite of a hype man. He's frequently telling people not to, do, not to tell anyone. He's hanging out in remote places. He's sneaking away from crowds and to get into a boat. Very much like the opposite of most sinful people, most of us sinful people, he does not use his authority or his power for fame and for hype. This is characteristic of him. And that's because ultimately his authority, any physical healing, any, anything that he would do when he reaches and touches us, ultimately is meant to bring us back into relationship with God. He didn't want it to be stuck with just like being a, a miracle healer hype man. The good news of the kingdom is not that our physical ailments are now gone and forever. That's not people's first and foremost biggest problem. It's that the, the good news of the kingdom is that life with God is now available to us. So he says, don't tell anyone, but then go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. There's a lot going on here. The first one is a Jew, uh, Jesus was a Jew operating in a Jewish society and that had a lot of rules and laws. And one of the big things that he says in the Sermon on the Mount is like, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so he says, go, go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded. Uh, the, the, the law that if a leper was ever healed or got rid of his leprosy, there was like the rules or some kind of sacrifice that he had to, he had to do in order to be officially clean again. It's a beautiful picture of how Jesus fulfills the law, is that he makes them clean and then brings him back into community. That's, that's the main function of, of this instruction, is that Jesus says, go to the people who you would have been outcast from, now that I've touched you, and embrace, embrace community. He's like, I'm going to heal you, and I'm going to send you back to church. This is what Jesus' healing does. It comes with a call. It comes with something to obey. A lot of commentaries believe that would have meant a very long trip for this dude. Uh, it wasn't like he just like walk around the corner to the church and do it. It would be like travel to Jerusalem and, and do this kind of like official religious uh, ceremony. He heals us individually, and then he sends us back into fellowship with the people of God. That's one of the ways that you know you've experienced Jesus or that you know Jesus, period, is that... Uh, you feel that sense of healing, and you feel that call or that uh, draw to the people of God. So how do we respond? What is God showing us here in the authority of our king? How do we follow him together? Well, there's just this beautiful juxtaposition in this man. We see Jesus respond well to him. It's that we, we come to him on our knees, and we come to him boldly. We come in humility with our bodies and our hearts. So not only did he show it with his body by kneeling, uh, but he knew he had nothing to offer, not, nothing even to ask. He doesn't even ask to be healed. He just states his faith. 
But there's a boldness there, an outcast, someone who is unclean, barges right up to the God of the universe. Isn't that like a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be completely broken and desperate, but also in your desperation, like boldly claiming faith in Jesus? He says, if you are willing, there's this undemanding trust. Again, he doesn't ask. He just he, he trusts and he doesn't make any demands. It's very different from like a frazzled problem solving, you know, or bartering kind of thing with God. Like, I had this pro- leprosy problem. Maybe if I do this and this, could you help me do this part, Jesus, or something? He just said, if you can do it. You, you can do it if you will. So this humble boldness, this kneeling boldness, is one of the ways that Scripture shows us is, 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 a, is a way to relate to our king. What might this look for us? Something to consider. This is a story. This is a narrative. Like These aren't like prescriptions, like thus says the Bible, go do these things. But just consider how we might be able to step into this kind of interaction with Jesus. Is talking to him boldly, with undemanding trust, about the things you hate about yourself the most, like the thing that you most feel ashamed of, the thing that you're scared to tell anybody about, and like try writing it down. Say, like, dear God, this is true about me. Bring that to him. And you can even just straight copy this guy's statement. Like, if, if you're willing, you can make me clean. If you're willing, you can take this from me. Most application and sermons come down to prayer <laughs> and reading the Bible. So that's kind of where we are today. But I hope you see some of the like, parts of our soul that even in our, in, in our shame, we keep even from God. Of course, we know he knows if you've been around church. But there's incredible power in embracing what this guy did. And just like in his brokenness and ugliness, he just went straight to Jesus. That would be the first step. And if you can get comfortable with that, I'd encourage you to find a trusted friend and say it out loud to a person. This guy didn't do it with Jesus privately. He, he, came, he came publicly. But in, in the people of God, that's one of the ways that we experience the healing touch of Jesus, the presence of Christ. He says that the church is the body of Christ. So how do we interact with Jesus? By being a part of the church and being known by the church. And then real quite, quite simply, uh, the last part, reading your Bible, it's, it seems obvious in some sense, but I think a lot of times we reject God's authority by simply not reading it, like not it, by ignoring it. You know what I'm saying? Like we'll never like actively say like I reject God's authority. We just never really read what Jesus said because if we don't read, then we don't have to have any, any issues and I think that kind of like resistance to scripture or neglect of scripture a lot of times kind of comes from a place of, like, of, of wanting to keep our own authority. Keeps us from God's word. But the cool thing about the story is it shows us that we can kind of come to it like on, on our knees and just wait. If you're willing, God, like I don't like this. I don't like what I just read or what I just read doesn't make sense. My anxiety, my laziness, my temper, you know, whatever it is, I, I hate this part about me. And we don't have to, like, make something happen. That's the cool thing. What does this guy do? He just is on his knees and said, if you're willing. So 
So practically, when it comes to scripture, I just uh, it would just make me super jazzed if, as a church, the next few months, we just really dived into the book of Matthew together. We'll be preaching through it pretty slowly, kind of like today, uh, but the more we're familiar with it, more reading it for ourselves and uh, letting it shape us and seeing the big picture of what Matthew's doing in the book, I think it'll just really be a sweet time. And, and just the first step, the first step of considering Jesus as our king is to actually like look at what he said and did, what, look at how he's revealed himself in scripture. So, you know, there's like 28 chapters, which is less than a chapter a day. Just consider if you're looking for a place to start to dive into Matthew with us. And if God shows you some, something cool, like let me know. I would love to hear that. And we could have you share it on Sundays or something. Ask God questions in humility. Ask God, uh, uh, put, put yourself before him and see what the Spirit might do in, in front of you. We don't have to make something come out of Scripture. The Holy Spirit will do that for us, uh, w- which is freeing. Let me pray.